Good morning, everyone. I feel like it's been forever since I've been up front with y'all, but it hasn't been. It's just the nature of time, I suppose. All right, so this morning, we are going to be continuing through our, um, our current series on the symbols of Christ. How many of you guys have been blessed by this? Good. You didn't have to show hands, but that's great. I uh, appreciate that. Um, I think it's it's so good to to take some of these some of these things and and spend some time, you know, kind of rest on them, kind of look at them, kind of let them stew a little bit, and, and to really think through some of these. We were in prayer this morning. I was I was praying about just our, our hearts that as we uh, enter into this this season, you know, today's Palm Sunday, you know, the beginning of Passion Week. That this wouldn't just be another, you know, another holiday season and we just go through the, the motions and we do the things and, and all the stuff. And it's like, yes, and we have, you know, Good Friday service and then we have Easter Sunday and, and all those things. But that we would actually slow down and we'd, we would really think about the, the profundity of what we know to be true. And, and as we do that, I think that we are going to be continually blessed uh, to be able to do that. And... To bless others. So this morning, you know, this is Palm Sunday. Traditionally, you know, you'd have kids up here with palm branches and stuff and, and do all those things. I know some of you may have been in churches where that was a, a really big thing. Um, so this morning, we're not, we're not doing that. And, and the symbol's not the palm branch. Thank goodness. There's, that'd be a, it'd be a stretch, I think, this morning. But um, this morning, we are going to be talking about the symbol of the cross, uh, which... Obviously, when you have Palm Sunday and you have the entry into Jerusalem, this is what we're leading up to. So the symbol of the cross is what we're going to be looking at today. Now, I would say that this symbol, what we're going to talk about today, is different from the other symbols. Well, they're all different, but this one is different because this is an outward symbol. This is a symbol that everybody knows. This is a symbol that everybody works on. I don't know that everybody thinks about water and me goes, yeah, that's like Jesus um, <clears throat> outside the church. But the cross is this symbol that not only that, that we use, but it's, it's, it's an outward symbol to others. Right? It's selected from, from a number of different symbols that were used in the early church. Um, the cross is sort of the symbol for Christianity. Right? And it's, that's, that's, that's what it is. You look at Wikipedia, you look at an uh, article about Christianity, or something, you're going to have the cross up top. You know, for for Islam, it's the crescent moon and star, and you know, for the Buddhists, they have the wheel. Um, also, the load. I mean, they've got all these different types of symbols, and, and for us, it's the cross. So that what's interesting about that is it takes this symbol and it means something to everyone else. But it also means something to us. And, and those two things, what it means to others and what it means to us, is that's what we're going to be kind of looking at this morning. What I wanted to, to do to, to initially kind of go through this is to kind of set the table as far as the symbol of the cross itself. So what we're not going to do, we're not going to be talking about the crucifixion. We're going to be doing that, a lot of that on Friday. We're going to talk about the cross and and the, the event of the cross and what the cross is. So as we do this, I wanted to actually go through some of these symbols. For us, we think, oh, there's just one cross. You know, we, we look at this, and this is the cross. 
his cross. That's it. That, this is, you know, in, in the United States, predominantly, this is understood to be the cross. This is called the Latin cross or the Roman cross. It's a very popular cross that, that's used. Um, and this, this picture, obviously, it's, it's not photorealistic to what a lot of the crosses may have looked like, but it was pretty common to look like this. Uh, that's the Latin cross. That's, that's the most understood cross. Uh, next one is, uh, should be familiar to us, this is the Greek cross. This is actually the one that we use. This became popular in the uh, 400s or so. Uh, but the Greek cross um, doesn't have the, the longer post. It's kind of uniform that way. If you've seen the Jerusalem cross, it's sort of based on this cross, the Jerusalem cross, which I don't have a, a photo of. The Jerusalem cross is different. It has four more in each, or has one in each of these four uh, spaces here, and it represents the gospel going out from Jerusalem in all four directions. So it's pretty cool. Uh, so anyway, it's a Greek cross. That's kind of the one we, we use here at Refuge for just the, the symbology of it. Red cross uses this one. Switzerland also. Interesting. Uh, next, next one we got here. All right, the Russian Orthodox or the Byzantine. I put both on here. That, that bottom post thing kind of goes a different direction just depending on what you're looking at. And this one is, is popular in Russia and other areas um, in the east. This has some different elements here. Believe it or not, there's dozens and dozens of different crosses that are used. Next one. So this was interesting. This is where we start to transition. So the other, those other symbols are symbols specifically for religious uses. This is where we start to get a little bit different. This is uh, called the Nordic Cross, the Danibog. This is uh, on flags and stuff in Scandinavia. This is, this is where we start to see a different symbology in the cross. This is where we start to get political uh, or national or something to that effect. So this cross has a story to it. Um, in the 1200s, there was a battle in Estonia, and the Danes were fighting, and this symbol, the legend says, fell from the sky, and they picked it up and used it as their banner, and they won, so then that became the banner that they used, and Scandinavian countries used this, this is called the Nordic Cross. The reason why this is interesting, it then became a national symbol, in addition to a religious symbol. So we start to see that kind of transition there. Fun fact, oldest flag in the world is the Danish flag, which is this flag. Next, we have the Maltese cross. Some of you may have seen this. Any of you who are familiar with no people who are in fire departments, this is very common to be used for fire departments. But this is actually part of the, um, the Maltese grouping of crusaders from Malta. Uh, that's why it's called Maltese. Uh, it can have uh, a number of different uh, shapes, variations to it, but it looks similar to this. This, again, this is a different, a different type of use of the cross. This became a sort of uh, militaristic kind of cross, and we use it differently today. Right? So the symbol of the cross means something different there. This was used by crusaders. Speaking of crusaders, they also would use the cross as sort of a rallying point. If you guys have seen... Um, pictures from the Crusades or things like that, they'd have this massive cross that would go in front of the army, uh, almost akin to what the Jews would do with the Ark of the Covenant. They'd bring it out there, and it was, it was covered in, in you know, precious metals and things that so would shine and stuff, and it was, it was this big beacon that was used. And so the cross 
um, became militaristic uh, as well. Next. Next one we've got the crucifix. Okay, so the crucifix, uh, depending on who you talk to, obviously this is used by, uh, well, not obviously if you don't know, but this is used by, um, by the Catholics. Roman Catholics will, will use this um, to actually have a figure of Christ being crucified. Uh, this, this is not a very, uh, compared to some of the other symbols, this is relatively newer to the whole cross thing. So this is around the 600s is where this popped up. It wasn't really used before that. And it's not used a whole lot in, in Protestant um, denominations. Um, but yeah, some people still have them, things like that. But next, yeah, we got this, the Cairo. Have you seen this one before? Yeah, so the, the Cairo, this is an old one. Uh, this is another one that, that it, again, the, the use of this is, is a little different. Back in 312 A.D., the Emperor Constantine, Emperor of Rome, was, uh, having, he was having a battle on some bridge. I can't remember now which bridge it was, but there's two, two visions that connect with this. One vision where he sees a cross, just a, some sort of cross. Um, no, he sees this first in a, in a dream, and then he has another vision later while they're marching, and it's, it looks more like a traditional cross, and and the stories kind of get mixed, but that X-looking cross, uh, he told his whole army to put that on their shields, and that became the symbol that they took. And this, he'd see this vision and would say, in this, in this symbol, conquer, or in, in this sign, conquer. Later on, the, the stories are kind of put together, and you see this is the Cairo. The reason it's called Cairo, those are the two letters in Greek they have there. And what, it, what they've come to understand it to mean is, you see, like, there's a person that row on a cross, and so it's supposed to kind of be a more text-driven or symbol-driven sort of idea. You could kind of think that maybe the crucifix kind of came from this idea of someone on the cross. But again, this was used politically. This then became a banner that was used for the Roman Empire, for the Romans, for the Roman Church. And so this became, uh, again, a national symbol and religious symbol. So now we're mixing all these different things. So the cross is more than just what we used to identify Christianity. The cross has been used by a lot of different groups. And this isn't even counting all the other religions that use it. Like the Hindus use it um, you know, in a different form and, and, and all these different things. But the cross is this outward symbol that's used in a variety of different ways. And you go to the next slide. Today, presently, it's not always used religiously. So, I mean, it's used as like a fashion piece. You know? I would not pay for that shirt. <laughs> but it's just a fashion icon. It's just added to things. It's just, and this is where we start to see the deterioration of the symbol of the cross. You have it just used, put onto things to where it, 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 it sort of has no meaning anymore. At least not any meaning that was attributed to it before. I don't think that you could say, this is a, this is a Christian skirt that we have, right? <laughs> Clearly Christian because of all the crosses upon it, right? So we can take that down. But the, the idea and the concept of the symbol of the cross, as we look at it, there's a way the world looks at it and they see it, and it could be used for a variety of different things, right? Political uses, uses for the military, uses as a rallying point, 
um, for fashion, for different things. So then, then the question really becomes, what, what is really, what's the symbol all about then? What, what is it really? Well, let's look at the scriptures. The verse that we're going to kind of start out with, it's going to be this underlying passage. And believe me, we're going to be going through a lot of different scriptures today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This gives us the two categories that we really see. All right, there's the cross that's, that's seen by everyone else, and then there's the cross to those who are being saved. And it means two different things, completely. We actually have two categories here. We have the perishing. So the perishing, those who, are, who have no hope of salvation, they see the cross and they see something different. Versus those of us who see that and see almost a turning on its head of the understanding, their understanding of the cross. Uh, but let's continue on here. For, for, the, uh, for those who are perishing, they see the cross as shameful. At least those who were closer to when the crucifixion took place, it was shameful. This was not a symbol that people used. This was not commonly used. In, in the time of Rome, this was not a symbol you would see on a shirt Nobody's wearing that. It was seen as a grotesque and horrible and terrible symbol. Disgusting. And in fact, if you, um, you, know, if you have a moment for light, entertaining reading, you can read Cicero, where he talks about the, the crucifixion itself should not even be thought, shouldn't even be brought to mind by Roman citizens because it is so terrible. They definitely shouldn't look at it. They shouldn't listen to it. They shouldn't be present when it takes place because it is that grotesque. And in fact, they had to develop new terminology. The word that we have, excruciating, comes from the term for the cross because they had to think up a new word for the level of pain that they had. Um, Most people think that the Romans came up with crucifixion. They didn't, but they perfected it. They made it a science. They were able to mass produce it like like McDonald's and hamburgers. Rome mass produced crucifixion and perfected it to where it was a science. Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. It was seen as not only too shameful, but just it was seen as, as a horrible fate to put on a Roman citizen. The only reason a Roman citizen would be crucified would be because of treason. Let's look at a couple verses here. Because it's not just the Romans that see it as shameful. Look at Deuteronomy. If a person commits a sin punishable by death and is executed and you hang the corpse on a tree, his body must not remain all night on the tree. Instead, you must take, I'm sorry, you must make certain to bury him that same day. For the one who is left exposed on a tree is cursed by God. You must not defile your and hmm, typo, in which the Lord your God is giving you, uh, defile the land in which the Lord is, is giving you as an inheritance. The idea and the concept of hanging on a tree, and, and honestly that, that idea between the cross and hanging on a tree is a synonymous idea at least in the ancient world. Even in the Old Testament, even in the law, 
it says that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Look at Hebrews, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set out before him. He endured the cross. Look at that, disregarding its shame. And has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. That concept there of being crucified and then being given a seat of authority was unheard of. But the fact that it, even in Hebrews it talks about that shameful aspect. They didn't ignore it in the church. It wasn't something that they said, yeah, but now it's different. They said, no, it is shameful. We don't have a symbol like that that's that disgusting to us that we have. I mean, we have a hangman's noose or a gas chamber. Those are really difficult. Well, the hangman's noose, I guess, would be an easier symbol, but we have some of these things, but nothing that approaches the same level of the cross as far as the disgust that people had for it. We just don't have it. That shameful aspect, that shameful piece, when we look at a cross, we sort of sanitize it. We take that stuff out. But in the New Testament, it doesn't do that. It still says, no, that needs to be there. So you can see in Hebrews, Jesus, in spite of the shame, he set that aside. He went ahead and he, he, he did it. Next slide. Let's continue on here. How does the Bible fill the symbol with meaning? So now we go from, from that aspect of death. We move over to how is this actually used in the Scripture, in the New Testament, when, when it talks about the cross. How is it different? So we're in this, uh, this other category now, those who are being saved. How is that symbol used differently? So you have shame, torment, death, disgust, treason, all those things are all added to that symbol of the cross. That is still present. And then added on top of that, in the New Testament, we have an additional meaning added. To the power of God, it looks something different. For us, as we look at this, we have to understand that what the cross actually means is more than just a symbol that just shows Christianity or that a church is someplace or we wear it on around our neck to just remind us about something. The work of Jesus on the cross was the culmination of the greatest clandestine operation in all time in history. This was the plan of God to save humankind, and the enemy could not have fathomed that that was the intended purpose. Could not have even imagined. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, uh, it states this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, don't have a slide for it, but it says that had they known, had the rulers of, this, of the age known what was going to happen, they would not have crucified the king of glory. They wouldn't have done it. They could not have fathomed that that was the plan, that God was going to use the cross, that God was going to use death to conquer death. There's no way they could have seen that. The cross is the zenith. It is the pinnacle of the battle for humanity. The enemy could not have seen that. Could not have seen what it was really for. This, this, this is essentially the last battle for humanity because once this is accomplished, nothing else has to be done. Then we walk in victory, right? And we, we have the possibility of life after that, the cross was the deciding battle for the war on sin and death and the serpent as promised in Genesis 3. It's not the end, but it's the finishing of that battle. It's the conquering of death. 
And to imagine that Christ, that Jesus would come to earth, and he had to come to earth as a man, to then die. For what purpose? So that he could conquer death. He had to die himself in order for that to take place. And for all of us to understand the depth of our sin, the cross was used for us to understand what it really cost for our salvation. The ultimate promise of life could not have been possible if we didn't have this conquering of death. just would not be possible. Let's, let's move on here. We're going to talk about cheerier things now. So what does it mean to us? Well, let's, let's look here. Next slide. Willing sacrifice. Let's go ahead and put that, those verses up here. Look at this. Galatians 1, 3 through 4. Grace and peace to you, God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from our present evil age according to the will of God our Father. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. He gave himself for us to set us free from every kind of lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are truly his, who are eager to do good. Look at this. He gave himself for us. Next verse should be really uh, well understood by all the married people in the room and everybody else who's read through Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and did what? And gave himself. Understand what this means. We're talking about a willing sacrifice. Jesus himself says, nobody takes my life from me. I give it up freely. He could easily have come off the cross. He could easily have dulled his own pain in some way, but he didn't. He gave himself willingly. He was a willing sacrifice, hearkening back to this idea of of Isaac, willingly giving himself as a sacrifice. And for what purpose? So that he might present the church to himself glorious. Let's move on. Next. To reconcile, to make peace. See, all these different things, this this is what we're adding to our understanding of what the cross is and why the cross had to take place. Let's look at these verses. Back to Ephesians chapter 2. For he is our peace, the one who made both groups into one and who destroyed the middle wall of partition. This is talking about reconciling Jews and Gentiles, the kingdom and the kingdoms, them being brought together. The hostility when he nullified in his flesh the law and commands and decrees. He did this to create in himself one new man out of two. This is talking about the church. Thus making peace and to reconcile them both in one body to God. So we have a reconciliation of Jews and Gentiles and we have a reconciliation of that body to God himself. And how did he do it? One body to God through the cross by which the hostility has been killed. Romans chapter 5. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have also obtained access by faith to his grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of God's glory. We have peace with God through Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that that could ever be possible is through the cross. Next. For while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more since we've been reconciled will he 
<clears throat> will we be saved by his life? So this again, it starts the cross, but that's not the end. There's still more. And obviously we'll be talking about that next week. Second Corinthians 5. In other words, in Christ Jesus, I'm sorry, in Christ, God reconciled the world to himself. See that reconciliation? Christ did that through the cross, not counting people's trespass against him. And he's given us the message of reconciliation. That reconciliation is now our understanding of the gospel. That only comes through the cross. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son and through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So understand this. It's only through the sacrifice. It's only through the cross that it's made possible to have life, to have reconciliation, to have forgiveness, to have peace. It had to go that way. See, that was the promise. That was the promise given years and years ago in, the, in Eden. That they would arrive again at this close relationship with God, but sin had to be dealt with. Sometimes people ask, well, couldn't God just forgive people? And it's just, yeah, it's okay. He couldn't do that and still be just because there was a payment to be made. There was an enemy to vanquish. You can't just have the good stuff. You've got to deal with the bad stuff so that we can get to the good stuff. That's my low-shelf assessment on the whole thing. Next slide. Look at this, redemption. Look at these verses. Hebrews chapter 9. He's entered once for all the most holy place, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. So he himself secured eternal redemption. Verse 14. He delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son he loves, or the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Romans chapter 3. This follows the popular verse that we know. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but they are justified freely by his grace. I think we should follow up that verse a lot more often with this verse. I think it would be good. But they're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. So we have this public display of the sacrifice. Again, this was part of the shame of the cross. People hung naked in front of everyone, suffering, sometimes for days. That was part of their punishment. Again, this perfected execution. It was seen as perfected because it would allow for maximum amount of pain and torture before the end, and it was all done publicly. Next. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it was written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We just read that in Deuteronomy. This passage from Galatians 3. He became for us that curse. And that's super important. Because if he became that curse, then what happened to Jesus on the cross? He died. It's dealt with. 
Galatians 4. But when the appropriate time has come, God sent out his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so they may be adopted as sons with full rights. We had to deal with the problem before we could get the gift, the gift of eternal life. Next slide. Cleansing. We'll get more verses here in a second. Um, anyone, anyone keeping up? Keeping up with the verses? It's a lot of flipping, I know. Yeah, I heard one time, this really convicted me when I, when I would preach or teach. So sometimes we preach for half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour. How often are we actually using the word? Because the word is the only thing that has any power. So really, I could stand up here and just read. Just read the Bible, and we'd, we'd actually all be better for it. So anyway, this morning, getting extra doses of that cleansing. Look at these verses here. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I don't normally think of getting blood on myself as cleansing. Right? That's counterintuitive. Yet this blood is cleansing. Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of his glory and the representation of his essence. And he sustains all things by his powerful, powerful word. And so when he had accomplished cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, we have this marrying of this idea of intense suffering and death in the most shameful, grotesque way possible, and then immediately after, receiving authority. We'll get back to that in a second. Next slide. Righteousness. Let's look at these verses. If he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, again, remember that the cross and the tree are, are an interchangeable symbol here, that we may cease from sinning and live for righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Hebrews thirteen twelve. Therefore, to sanctify the people of his own blood, Jesus also suffered outside the camp. He had to suffer. He had to die. And this was to sanctify his people, to bring righteousness. Next slide. Son of man. This is where it all comes together. If we take the first idea, what the world sees in the cross, and, and people who are closer to the events of actual crucifixion would see it as a horrible, grotesque, disgusting, treasonous act. Connect that with all the things we just saw, righteousness, cleansing, all those different things. We put those things together, and it doesn't make any sense. We start to see that, that idea that the people who are perishing do see this as foolishness. This idea and the concept of the Son of Man. This is a really important one. This is one of Jesus' favorite terms to use for himself, and there's a big, big reason for that. It helps us to understand this idea. Intense, horrible, grotesque suffering leads to proper place of authority. That doesn't make sense to the world, but it makes sense in the kingdom. Let's look, go to the next slide here. Daniel 7 and Isaiah 53. If you just take those two things, they don't seem to work together. Daniel chapter 7. We haven't gotten there in our year of biblical literacy. We will. Eventually. We'll get there. Daniel chapter 7 can be a confusing chapter. There's a lot of things going on. 
do want to look at it real quick. I don't have a slide for it, so you guys can just listen. But there's a description here. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. If it helps you to close your eyes to kind of visualize, feel free to do so. It's actually, starting in verse 12, this is Daniel writing, As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season of time. This is in connection with the vision that he was seeing before about these beasts. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the cloud of heaven, clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and it was presented before him. And to him, meaning to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You have this prophetic vision of this one who's called the Son of Man. What's interesting is that he goes before the Ancient of Days. He goes before God. And he has given all of these things. Now, us looking back, we have the benefit of perspective from the New Testament. Who is this son of man? There you go. It's the Sunday school answer, right? It's Jesus, right? We, we can see that plainly. Because we know. We know the, how the story works and how that goes. But for them, they're waiting for the Messiah, waiting for those things. This is, this is a promised person to arrive and so when Jesus starts to call himself the son of man this is part of the agitation that a lot of the religious leaders thought because they connected it back with this idea the son of man that's really arrogant to say can't believe he called himself that and for us we read it we're like son of man whatever he's the he's the son of a man but that's not what he's saying I mean that is what he's saying but it's more than that so part of this also goes back to this idea of the son of whatever fill in fill in the blank when you say that, when you see, would see that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the, the understanding is the son of someone is the full and complete representation of that one. As you go through the, and actually we were just seeing this in First and Second Kings, when it, and we'll see it in Chronicles as well, when a king in the north is discussed, he's never once called the son of David, even though by lineage they are. Only the southern kings, and only a few of them are called sons of David. Why? Because it's not, we're not just talking about parentage or pedigree. What we're talking is a king that lives out and exemplifies and displays all of the fullness of what David did. As a man after God's own heart, ruling as a king like David did, that's what they're talking about. When someone's called the son of someone, they embody all that that person was or is. Later on it talks about, in the Old Testament it talks about the Antichrist being the son of perdition. Again, same thing. So when we get to the New Testament and we get to this passage here, son of man, what does that mean? It means that son of man, this is the wholeness and fullness of what a man really is. And that's amazing. So when you see it there, it's like, oh, so there's going to be a man that receives all of these things, and he's going to be the personification of the fullness of what it's meant to be a man. Jesus uses that term of himself. Then if we go to Isaiah 53, stick with me, because this has nothing to do with what we just talked about, at least in the text that we're going to look at. You go to Isaiah 53. How many of you have read through Isaiah 53? This is a uh, quite popular 
passage for people to, to look through the read through, especially through this, this time of year as we're preparing for the worship of Jesus. We're not going to read through the whole thing, but actually starting in chapter 52, verse 12, kind of a chapter, unfortunate chapter break right in the middle of a thought. But in the very beginning, he says, uh, Isaiah 52, verse 12, For you shall not go out in haste, you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, he shall be exalted as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. And he is talking about his blood there. That's hearkening back to a practice done by the priests to sprinkle the blood. But he's not just sprinkling Israel. Notice here. He shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Now into Isaiah 53, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like the root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We put these ideas and concepts together here in this chapter, and what we see is this servant, this one being talked about, he's commonly referred to as the suffering servant. He's the one that God says, my servant is going to go, and he's going to suffer in this way, in this manner. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And his wounds, I'm sorry, and with his wounds we were healed. And that part was quoted in one of the other passages we looked at, clearly connecting this to the Messiah in the New Testament. But for a Jew living at the time of Jesus, he would not have connected these two things at all. But if you look at this next slide, Jesus, Son of Man on the cross. We're not going to read all three of these verses, but these verses here, if you want to write two of these down, we're only going to look at Luke. So next slide here should show us there we go, Luke 18. We're just going to look at Luke just for time's sake. We pretty much all say pretty much the same thing. Luke chapter 18, verse 31 through 34. And then taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered before the Gentiles, who will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. Yeah, just leave it to them. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. The reason is, is that it's towards the, as, as, as Passion Week got closer, the more he would start to talk about crucifixion. I'm going to be crucified, people. It just did, it's like, I, I, I can't perceive of that. 
actually taking place. What's interesting is that he connects here the Son of Man and the suffering servant to reveal that first you would suffer, and then he would receive glory. He puts these pieces together in a way that none of them ever would have because why would a great king, why would one who would be given a kingdom by the Ancient of Days suffer on a tree? They could not put those pieces together because they did not see the whole picture. This had to be done to win this war, the war for mankind. Jesus connects these two things in, in a way that they, they couldn't have done this. And so when you, you talk about the perishing, they obviously see this as foolishness. They see these things and they, they cannot put the two pieces together. Jews couldn't do it because they, they could not perceive that the Son of Man would be connected that way. And the Romans are just utterly grotesque by crucifixion anyway, so they would never listen to anybody who was crucified. It was disgusting to them. And in fact, if you look at some of the archaeological finds, you, f- you find in, in some Roman places of worship mocking Christianity that show a person on a cross hanging and have like a, like a donkey's head on them. I don't know why, but they thought Jews worshipped donkeys. I don't know. But just mocking this whole idea. They also regarded just Christianity as just another weird sect off of Judaism, you know, offshoot. So they, they put this whole concept, they said, this is weird. This is and enough to be mocked. To made fun of. They could not put those pieces all together because they could not see the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning as our God has revealed to us. By taking the cross as a general symbol for Christianity, we then take this foolishness and we put it ahead and say, this is actually our banner. This is actually how we should be identified. The reason is, is because Jesus was God, very God, and he became man, son of man. And he lived and endured this thing on our behalf for us. And those concepts don't make sense. Why? Why would he do this? Why would he willingly do this? No one would willingly be crucified. This is madness. Absolute madness. By doing that, we highlight the mystery of the gospel, the glory of the kingdom, the fact that one who would be humbled, who would be made low, would then be given authority. In fact, in Philippians 2, take this idea as you put them together as low as Jesus goes down from being God, very God in the throne room of heaven to then being as low as not just a human, but then a human who was killed and not just killed, but killed on a cross. To see that difference between the heights that he was to how low he was, he's elevated even higher than he was before. That is the mystery of the gospel. That the humble are elevated as rulers and those who suffer are blessed. This makes no sense to those who are perishing. Next, our example. Look at these verses here. Because it's not just for us to think, yes, Jesus did that and that's wonderful and that's great. Being a Christian, just the very word means that we're a little Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 16, starting verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself and do what? 
take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Matthew 10, we have a similar idea here. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me will find it. See a trend? Philippians chapter 1 takes it one step further. For it has been granted to you, this is Paul talking to church in Philippi, it's been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to what? Suffer for him. We can't have a king that we highlight as the wonderful, humble servant who obeyed to the point of death and then expect that we, his followers, are somehow better than he. Is he not our master? Is a disciple greater than his master? Some of us have believed a lie that we somehow are not worthy of the same suffering that Jesus took upon himself, when in fact the only reason Jesus suffered what he did was because of us, because of our own sin. To understand the cross is also to understand how to be his disciple. What it's going to cost. I may have told this story a long, long time ago. I had a friend on a missions trip when I was in Croatia. His name was Darko. And he was one of our translators. He's just like a really cool guy. He'd come and hang out with us. He spoke English real well, obviously, because he's one of our translators. And he's just really neat. He, he translated all of our sermons and Bible studies and things. He'd heard the gospel many, many, many times. But every time we would, and everybody on the team, every, and we went back multiple years, uh, every time they would get to this point where they talked to us, they'd say, Darko, you know all this stuff. What's keeping you from actually following Jesus? And he says, I know what it costs. And it costs too much. See, in Croatia, if you leave the Catholic Church and you say that you're now a Christian following Jesus, you lose your job, family disowns you, oftentimes you have to move just to live a normal life. He was, and we'd say like, oh, that's, come on, Darko. Why don't you just believe? He actually thought about what it cost, and he knew right well how much it would cost him to follow Jesus. He said, I'm not ready to do that. Because he knew to follow Jesus meant he would partake in it. And I think for us, we have this illusion for ourselves that somehow we can engage in this relationship with Christ and want to follow him and want to be like him and somehow escape every element of suffering. We see every element of suffering that ever shows up in our lives as an attack. Instead, this is God the Father doing exactly what we ask him to do. Jesus, uh, Lord, Father God, make us more like Jesus. He says, all right, here comes a measure of suffering. No, take it back, take it back, dust up. We have this tug of war where the father says, I know what I'm doing. My perspective as God is greater than yours. God is more introduced, or more, he wants for us to follow Jesus to the greatest measure of our own extent. He wants us to follow him in a real, 
way. He wants us to actually take up our cross and follow him, which means that we'll have this introduction of suffering into our life. Because the rest of this world does not, does not hold to that, sees it as foolishness. Next slide here. I put this up here. This, this I think, this old song, old Methodist hymn, I think carries so many of those ideas and concepts with it for us to really understand the cross. Just look at the words. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I'll cling to the old rugged cross, exchange it someday for a crown. You can see in every one of these verses highlight the shame of the cross and the glory of Jesus. Every refrain. Let's look at the last verse here. To that old rugged cross I'll ever be true, its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away, where his glory forever I'll share. Father, I pray that we <clears throat> we would know and understand what it costs to be a disciple of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would see the cross just as those who are being saved. Lord, as the power of God. The power of salvation. The power over death. The victory over our sin. Lord, I pray as we prepare our hearts to worship your Son on Good Friday. Lord, to remember the sacrifices made for us, his torture, his wounds, his suffering, and his death. Lord, I pray that we would remember what it costs to be a follower of you. And I pray, Lord, in spite of whatever suffering you bring into our lives, that we would willingly endure it. Lord, that we might live lives worthy of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.